morning, church. Welcome to week two of our Christmas series that we are calling The Women Who Gave Us Jesus. If you listen to Pastor Ryan, last Sunday he explained that we're going to spend a total of five weeks looking at the stories of the five women who are named in Jesus' family tree in the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. So that's why we're titling it The Women Who Gave Us Jesus. Now, obviously, Jesus had more than just five female ancestors, but in a time and culture when most genealogies didn't mention women at all, Matthew chose these five women on purpose to teach us something specific about the coming of Jesus Christ, what we all commonly refer to as Christmas. So if, if you want to think about our goal for this entire series, it's really threefold. Number one, we want to faithfully tell you the stories of each of these women. Number two, explain to you why their stories are relevant for our lives today. And then lastly, we want to connect their stories to Christmas. So last Sunday, Pastor Ryan got us started by looking at the story of Tamar, and the theme in her story that connects us to Christmas was justice or righteousness. This Sunday, today, we're going to be looking at the second lady in the genealogy who is Rahab, and the guiding theme in her story that connects us to Christmas will be salvation. So we're looking at Rahab and salvation. So before we go any farther, let's go ahead and read her story here on the front end. It begins in the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 2, and it ends in Joshua chapter 6. For the sake of time, I'm just going to read to you the most relevant verses of the story In chapter 2, starting with verse 1, here's what it says. Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from the Acacia Grove, saying, Go and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left, and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, Yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. Skip down to verse 8. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. And that the terror of you has fallen on us, and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below." Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them and save us from death. The men answered her, we will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. And jump down to verses 17 through 18. The men said to her, we will be free from this oath you made us swear, unless when we enter the land, you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's family into your house. So as you listen, like any good story, you probably picked up on a number of big themes. We got courage, 
sacrifice, faith, family. And throughout the course of this teaching, we will touch on probably all of those at some point. But like I said a minute ago, the central theme in Rahab's story that unites all those other themes is salvation. Now, I realize that for some of you, that probably sounds very basic. And, and to a certain extent, that's true. You don't really get more basic or more foundational in Christianity than talking about salvation. Whether you've grown up in the church your whole life or you're pretty new to all this, I imagine that most of us have heard Jesus came to bring us salvation. I say all that to say this, don't mistake basic for simple or irrelevant or boring. Because what I hope you see is the salvation in Rahab's story and the salvation in Christmas, which we'll connect it to, is much bigger, much more interesting, and much more relevant for all of our lives than we might at first imagine. It's not, if you want to imagine this as an analogy, it's not one-dimensional. It's more like a multifaceted diamond that if you were to hold up to the light and turn it, depending on which angle you look at it from it would refract that light into different beautiful colors. In the same way, this theme of salvation has so much beauty and truth to display to us depending on which angle we turn to look at it. And so the story of Rahab provides us with at least three of those unique and beautiful angles, and those three angles of salvation are going to really form the outline for the rest of our time together. So here they are. First, we're going to look at this need for salvation. Then we're going to turn this diamond and look at the scope of salvation, and lastly, we will look at the means of salvation. I just realized that saying a lot about diamonds around Christmas time is probably making all the men sweat. I apologize for that. It was not my intention. Let's talk about the need for salvation. In verse 13, Rahab tells us explicitly why she needs salvation. She just comes out and says to the spies, save us from death. So, in order to understand, though, why she and her people are facing death in the first place, I think it's going to be really helpful if I can just take a minute or two to make sure that we're all on the same page about the major plot points of her story, but more importantly, really, how her story fits into the bigger story around her. So, give me just a second to walk through this and and track with me, because all of this is going to be foundational for everything else that we say. So, after God rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, His intention at that point was to give them a land of their own so they can live as a secure and free nation. But unfortunately, they get to the very doorstep of this land that he's going to give them, and they get afraid. And so they decide they're not going to trust God, and they're not going to obey God. So God has to punish them by making them live in the desert as nomads for 40 years. So now we're in the book of Joshua. The 40 years is up. And it's time for these people to stop wandering in the wilderness and start living in the land that God promised them. The only problem, same problem that made the people afraid 40 years ago, is that there are already people living in this land. So in order to take possession of it, in order to start living in it, they first have to conquer the people that are living there. And these are a people group broadly known as the Canaanites. And the first Canaanite city they have to conquer is Jericho with its infamous impenetrable defense walls. If you spent any time in Sunday school growing up, you've heard about the walls that came a-tumbling down. So, like any good military commander, Joshua, he's taken over from Moses at this point. He's the leader of Israel. He sends in spies to do a little reconnaissance before he draws up a battle plan. Unfortunately, the king of Jericho hears that the spies are in his city, and so he sends out a team to find them and arrest them. This is where Rahab comes in. Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute 
living in the city of Jericho. So technically, these Israelite spies are her enemies, but she decides she's going to help them. And in return for her help, she asks these men to make sure that she and her family are saved alive when the city is conquered. So these spies agree. When the day of Jericho's defeat finally arrives, Rahab and her family are indeed saved alive. I tell you all that with the hopes that now Rahab's need for salvation is a little more clear. She needs to be saved from death, like she said, because her city and her people are about to be destroyed by the conquering Israelites at the command of God. So that's the answer, but that brings up a much more controversial question now. Why did God command the Israelites to destroy these people in the first place, to destroy an entire people? Scripture gives us a very straightforward answer to that question in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. So let me read it to you, as uncomfortable as it is, and then give me a few minutes to explain it and unpack it. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, here's why they're going to destroy these people. When the Lord your God drives them out before you. So he's talking to the Israelites, and he's talking about driving out the Canaanite nations that are living in the land. When the Lord your God drives them out before you, you Israelites do not say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Don't say that. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. So Rahab's people, the people of Jericho, are being driven out and destroyed as a just punishment for their own wickedness. This is not an ethnic cleansing kind of issue. This is not a weak versus strong bullying kind of issue. This is ultimately a sin issue. You see, Yahweh, who's the name of the God of Israelites, Yahweh is no mere tribal deity. The Canaanites may worship other gods like Baal and Moloch, but they were created by and they owe their worship, love, and obedience to Yahweh. As as the sovereign creator of all peoples from all nations, Yahweh has the divine right to hold those people accountable for failing to live up to the good and loving image in which He made them. He made all peoples to reflect His image. And that ultimately is the essence, that's what Scripture tells us, is the essence of sin. It's this failure to reflect the image of God in which we were made. That's a failure that shows up both in our relationship to God, but also in our relationship to the rest of creation. So that's the answer, and maybe an uncomfortable answer. You might be wondering at this point, what kind of wicked sin did these Canaanites practice to deserve such a harsh punishment? Because I think in the world that we live in, it can be really tempting in our minds to imagine these Israelites as a group of like intolerant religious fanatics and to imagine maybe the Canaanites as these lovers of peace. They're just trying to mind their own business. They've probably got signs outside the city. Maybe you have these signs or you've seen these signs. They've probably got signs outside the city that say, in this house, we believe women's rights are human rights, and love is love, and kindness is everything. That's the Canaanites. That's wrong. In reality, yes, Israel was not a perfect nation. You heard God say to them, don't say that you're getting this land because of your own righteousness. You're not. You're imperfect too. But if, if there was a sign that could capture the culture of the Canaanites based on information we have from both inside and even outside the Bible, 
that sign would actually read something more like this. In this house, we believe in religious prostitution, incest, bestiality, and child sacrifice. Rahab herself, you heard it, is described as a prostitute. And so it's possible, we're not told, but it's possible that she was a sacred prostitute who served at the Canaanite fertility shrines. And I'm not going to horrify you on a Sunday morning with the graphic details of how they practiced child sacrifice. But, but because we are talking about a very controversial topic, God destroying an entire people, I do want you to, to at least feel a little bit of the heartbreak and misery that must have permeated this world so that you can get a concept of why this makes sense. So let me, let me read to you a quote. This is from the Greek historian Plutarch. This is not a Christian The Greek historian Plutarch is describing the atmosphere of one of these child sacrifice rituals in the ancient city of Carthage. And this city had Canaanite roots and it practiced Canaanite religion. So it's a pretty good indication of what may have been going on in places like Jericho. Here's the quote. But the people of the city knowingly and wittingly themselves devoted their own children. And they that had no children of their own bought of some poor people and then sacrifice them like lambs or pigeons. The poor mother, standing by the while without either a sigh or a tear, and if by chance she fetched a sigh or let fall a tear, she lost the price of her child, but it was nevertheless sacrificed. And all the places around the image, that's referring to the statue that would receive the children, all the place around the image were in the meantime filled with the noise of flutes and drums to drown out the poor infants crying. So, I know it probably doesn't answer all of our questions, and maybe it doesn't satisfy all of our modern sensibilities, but, but, but my hope is that maybe hearing that makes it just a little bit easier to swallow, a little easier to understand why Scripture can say the Canaanites were being destroyed as a just punishment for their sins. And as a member of and as a participant in this Canaanite civilization and religion, Rahab deserved this punishment as well. So remember, all that we're talking about right now is the need for salvation. So the salvation that Rahab needs is is salvation from the punishment her sin deserves. But if you think about it, she actually needs more than that. She also needs salvation from the trauma that her sin inflicts. Think about who she is in this culture. As a prostitute, she's constantly being abused by men for their own pleasure. And if indeed she is a religious prostitute, her body is basically just a tool to satisfy the gods of her culture. Does that sound familiar? And as a woman living in this kind of culture, it's very possible that she lives in the constant dread of one day having to offer her own child in the fires of Moloch. So again... Rahab needs salvation, not just from the punishment of sin, but from the power of sin that terrorizes her. And the reason I'm telling you all of this is because the same goes for all of us. And that brings us to Christmas. It's a weird segue, isn't it? Punishment, sin, terror, Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. We often think of Christmas as a time of hope and joy. And I am here to burst that button. No, it really is. It's a time of hope and joy. But, but if Christmas is going to bring us hope and joy, it first has to declare to us the problem that robs us of hope 
and joy. You can't have a solution without having a problem. So let's jump back to Matthew chapter 1. Remember, that's why we're doing this series at all. In in Matthew chapter 1 in the New Testament, we get this genealogy of Jesus, and one of the women mentioned is Rahab. That's why we're looking at her story. But right after that genealogy, we start the Christmas story proper in Matthew chapter 1. I want to read to you verse 21 in that chapter. Here's what it says. Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, the angel declares to her. Why Jesus? What does that name mean? Here's what it means. Because he will save his people from their sins. So the question is, why did God send his son to be born as a human on that first Christmas? Answer, because we are sinners who, like Rahab, need to be saved from our sins. If you've been at Severn for any length of time, I'm sure you've probably heard a lot about how Jesus can transform your life. We're all about that here. That's our mission here. And so, over the course of different teachings, you've probably heard us talk about how Jesus can give you a new and better identity. He can satisfy your deepest desires and give you hope in the midst of uncertainty, access to a loving Father that will never abandon you. We could go on and on and on. All of those things are true. All of them are wonderful, but none of them are possible without Jesus first saving us from our sins. Because if you think about it, it's sin that's defaced our identities. It's sin that have warped our desires. It's sin that robs us of hope. It's sin that ultimately separates us from God and makes us His enemies instead of His children. So, so before we can have any of the other benefits, sin must be dealt with. It is our root problem. And Jesus didn't come just to cut down the weeds in our garden so that we look healthy and alive on the surface. He came to pull out the weeds by the root so that we truly are healthy and alive even underneath the surface. So, so the first message of Rahab and of Christmas that all of us need to hear is that all of us need salvation from the punishment and power of our sins. Now, before we move to the second big idea. Let me say this. I realize this is not a very warm and fuzzy way to start a Christmas message. We'll get to warmer and fuzzier things in just a second. But let me me just confront the potential elephant in the room and, and maybe some of your minds. In a culture like ours that is, on the one hand, largely allergic to authority, on the other hand, so individualistic that morals are generally viewed as more of a personal preference than anything absolute, in that kind of culture... It can seem a little outdated and even a little offensive to be told that all of us are held accountable to this authority figure that we can't see and that we've broken his laws and that we stand to be punished by him. And if that's where you're coming from, if that's the way you hear that, let me just say this. I see your point. I I am part of this culture too. I'm shaped by this culture too. I see where you're coming from. but, But without getting too far off topic, let me just ask you to quickly consider a different angle. If there is no such thing as as everything we just talked about, sin against a God who will hold us accountable, if that doesn't exist, then what's your alternative? Here's what I mean by that. How then, if none of that exists, how then do we actually explain evil, both the evil we see inside ourselves and outside of ourselves, and where do we hope to find ultimate justice when the systems of justice in this world fail, which they do a lot And your answer to those questions may just be simply, there is no answer. There is no hope. There is no final justice. This is just the world we have. We better get used to it. And if that's your answer, listen, I respect your honesty. I would just gently push back and say, I think we all know better than that. 
I think in each and every one of us, if we will stop distracting ourselves long enough, there is this nagging sense that something's wrong in me and outside of me, and therefore I need somebody to rescue me. I need somebody to put things right. And, and the answer, the message that we see in Rahab and in Christmas, in, in my mind, and, and this is what I'm putting out to you, in my mind that message is a lot more compelling, it's a lot more uh, sensical, it makes a lot more sense of our own experience and of the world around us than any of the alternatives. Evil and injustice exist in the world because all of us are sinners who have rebelled against the authority of a good God, and now we are enslaved to sin's power and punishment. And so, we need salvation from that sin. But so far, we've only really talked about the negative aspects of this salvation, the the bad things we need to be saved from. Let's pivot now to a more positive topic, which is our our second big idea here, the scope of salvation. So, So, when I say scope, what I'm really asking there is, how big is this salvation? And there are really two ways to think about that. First, how big is it in terms of who does it reach? And secondly, how big is it in terms of what benefits does it include? So let's look at each of those separately for just a minute. So first, who is God's salvation actually for? Um, One of the many interesting things about the story of Rahab is the fact that we have her story at all. Because if you think about it, if Joshua had merely wanted to record how the Israelites conquered the land, the story of the spies is really unnecessary. He could have skipped forward to the march around the walls and how they came tumbling down. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, for an ancient Israelite, this story is probably a little embarrassing on the surface because you've got these men of God, handpicked by their commander, having to be saved by a pagan prostitute woman. So, if all Joshua really cared about was highlighting Israel's victory and their entry into the land, he had plenty of reason to just leave out Rahab's story. But he didn't. And since he includes it, we know that he and God who's inspiring him must be trying to communicate something more. So, the question is, what are they trying to communicate? Why is Rahab's story here? There's more than one answer to that, but the main answer actually takes us back farther than this episode in Israel's history, back to where it all began with a man named Abraham. So remember, don't, don't forget what we're asking. We're asking, who is this salvation for? And to get there, we've got to go back to Abraham. So I told you just a few minutes ago, God freed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt and then decided to give them the land. But if we're not careful and if you don't know the story, that might sound like a last-minute decision on God's part. Like, man, I freed these people. What am I going to do with them? Oh, there's a land over there. That's not how that worked. 500 years before the story of Rahab, God chose this man named Abraham to be the forefather of the nation of Israel, and he made him a promise. Let me read to you this promise in Genesis 26, verse 4. This is about 500 or so years before the story we're talking about today. Here's the promise to Abraham. I, God, speaking to Abraham, I will make your offspring... That's going to be the nation of Israel. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give your offspring all these lands. So the story of Israel conquering Jericho and taking possession of the land is really the story of God keeping his promise to Abraham. And and I think you're going to see in a second, there's a sense in which the, the story of the entire Bible is the story of God keeping his promise 
to Abraham. But I actually did, I didn't finish reading the promise. So go back to Genesis 26, verse 4. I want you to hear the rest of it. So God says, I will give your offspring all these lands, but then listen to the end, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. All the nations will be blessed by your offspring. This is the answer to why the story of Rahab. Remember, Rahab is not an Israelite. She's a person from those all nations. This is why her story is not only included in Joshua's narrative, it's actually a central part of it because it's a reminder that God's ultimate purpose and His ultimate promise is not to just bless and save people from one nation, Israel, but to bless and save people from all nations nations. So the salvation of Rahab is really just a foretaste of God keeping this promise. And the full and the final fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ and His coming at Christmas. So let's jump back to the genealogy in Matthew 1. We're going to do this one or two more times here. So listen to how this genealogy begins in Matthew 1, verse 1. This is an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what that means is one of Matthew's explicit purposes in giving us this family tree is to prove to us that Jesus can indeed trace his ancestry all the way back to Abraham. What he's trying to say is Jesus truly is the son, the offspring of Abraham. And as the ultimate offspring of Abraham, Jesus is the one who will bring true blessing and true salvation, not just to Israel, but to all nations. And that actually helps us understand probably one major reason why Matthew chose to include Rahab and the three other women in his genealogy before he gets to Mary. Because those four women that he chooses to include, we've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, All four of those, in some sense, have a connection to the nations outside of Israel. And just in case you think we're making that up and that doesn't really fit, jump to the end of Matthew's gospel. So so we were just at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. Now jump to the very end, chapter 28, verse 19. This is the second to last verse in his entire book. These are Jesus' words. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So what this means is Matthew begins and ends, he he bookends his gospel by reminding us that Jesus is the son of Abraham, who in fulfillment of God's promise came to bring salvation to people of all nations, people like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Now, around this time of year, Pastor Ryan often mentions that his favorite Christmas movie is It's a Wonderful Life. But I've got the microphone now, and he's not here. So allow me to humbly submit my own choice for best Christmas movie of all time. I actually Googled this before I came up here on stage. I Googled best Christmas movies of all time. And what I learned was the Internet has no idea what a good Christmas movie is. Thank you. It's a Wonderful Life was consistently number one. So if you want to jump on the bandwagon and go with Ryan, that's fine. But if you want to be a rebel and enjoy a good Christmas movie, let me submit to you The Santa Claus. All right. Thank you. Starring Academy Award-deserving actor Tim the Toolman Taylor. (laughs) 
That's all I really wanted to say. I have no point to make there other than watch this. No, I really have a serious point to make. Near the end of this movie, it's, it's a wonderful movie. There's a lot of nostalgia for me uh, from my childhood. So near the end of the movie, Santa, as in most Santa movies, is being interrogated by the police. And if you haven't seen the movie, that's a long story. Just watch it. So, so they don't believe that he's Santa. Of course they don't believe that he's Santa. So they just keep asking him what his real name is. And every time they ask him, he just says Santa Claus in a different language. Kris Kringle, Sinterklaas, Père Noel, Buono Natale, Pels Nicole, Topo Gijo. Everybody know? Yeah. It plays, it plays for laughs and it plays really well. But it's actually a pretty accurate representation of Christmas. What, what, I say all that to say this. Even in our secular traditions and symbols, we recognize that Christmas is for everyone everywhere. It's not an American holiday. It's not just an English speaker's holiday. It's a global holiday. But you have to, you have to step back and just ask, how did that happen? How did the birth of a Jewish peasant in the first century Middle East become a global holiday that 2,000 years later we're all still celebrating? And the answer is simple, because from the very beginning, the men and women who had their lives transformed by this Jewish peasant, they understood that his coming was the fulfillment of a promise to all nations. And so for the past 2,000 years, even up until today, these same men and women, they have given their time, effort, resources, even their lives sometimes to take his story of salvation all around the world. So now we know who this salvation is meant to reach. It's for all nations, all people. So now let's look at the second part of this scope of salvation. What benefits does it actually include? Again, like most questions we ask of the Bible, there's more than one answer, but I just want to point out the primary answer I see in Rahab's story. So Rahab and her family are saved when Israel conquers the city, and that could have been the end of their story. The Israelites could have just sent this pagan prostitute and her family out to figure out their own future but they didn't. Listen to the very last thing we're told about Rahab, Joshua chapter 6, verse 25. However, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's family, and all who belonged to her because she hid the messengers Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho. But here's the key part, and she still lives in Israel today at the time of the writing of Joshua. Here's what this means. Rahab isn't just excluded from destruction. She's included into the people of God. She isn't just given forgiveness and freedom. She's also given a home and a family. That's how big God's salvation was, not just for Rahab, but for all of us. You see, God was sending Jesus into the world, not just to save people from every nation and then keep them separate, like I know you guys are never getting along. He actually, he came to save people from all nations and bring them together without losing their uniqueness and their beauty, to bring them together into one family, into one new humanity. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this in the New Testament In Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 19, he says, For Jesus is our peace, who made both groups, talking about the same groups we're talking about, Israelites and all the other nations, he made both groups one, and he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, but listen to this part, so that he might create in himself one new 
man, one new humanity from the two resulting in peace. So then, if you've received this salvation, like Rahab, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, of His family. That's the scope of the salvation we see in the story of Rahab and the story of Christmas, that no matter who you are, where you come from, what language you speak, what God you worship, you are a sinner who needs salvation, and Jesus was born into this world to bring it to you. But He offers you more than just a pardon for your crimes and a release from prison. He offers you a home where you can finally feel like you belong. So looking at that offer, the only question really we need to answer next is, how is that possible? How is an amazing offer like that even possible? And that brings us to our final major idea today, which I'm calling the means of salvation. I was going over this with my my wife yesterday, and I told her, I think this is going to be the most complicated part to explain. So I would just ask you to lean in. If you've been asleep up to this point, wake up. Here we go. Lean in with me. Remember, God had commanded the Canaanites that they should be destroyed for their sins. He commanded Israel to go destroy them for their sins. And three times in this story, three times throughout Rahab's story, a very specific technical Hebrew word is used for this destruction. That word is haram. It's like a guttural. You've got to get in the back of your throat. It's haram. Yeah, thank you. Somebody's got it. Or maybe you're just clearing your throat. Sorry. Haram. And according to the law of Moses, anything that fell under the haram category was irrevocably destined for destruction and could not be redeemed. But we know Rahab's redeemed. So how is that possible? The answer is simple but profound. Let me, let me just tell you the answer and then give me a few minutes to unpack it. God, in His grace, saved Rahab, even though she deserved punishment, through a covenant defined by substitution. You're probably thinking, what in the world does that mean? Listen to Joshua chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. This is Rahab speaking to the spies after she's rescued them and saved their lives. She says, Now, please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them, and save us from death. Then the men answered her, We will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. Now, you heard three times in those verses the word kindness. The Hebrew word behind that is chesed, another guttural. This is another technical term. One commentary defined it like this. So when you see the word kindness, here's what it means. It's unfailing help to a needy covenant partner. This is covenant language. Rahab is entering in to a binding covenant agreement with these men by giving them chesed, kindness, and asking in return for that same covenant kindness. And she wants to know that they're committed to this covenant, so she asks them for two proofs. She says, give me an oath, swear it to me, and give me a sign. The oath is clear in verse 14. The men say to her, we will give our lives for yours. In other words, if it comes down to it, we will save your life by substituting our own if necessary. That's the oath. The sign comes in verses 17 through 18. Listen to it. 
The men said to Rahab, we will be free from this oath you made us swear unless when we enter the land, here's the sign, you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Now listen, I'm not a huge fan of just reading symbols and metaphors into everything in the Bible. Not everything is a symbol and a metaphor. Sometimes it just means what it means, right? So it's possible, it's possible that there's no deeper meaning to this scarlet cord than what's clearly implied here. This bright red rope will serve as a sign to help us identify where you and your family are so that when we come in, we won't destroy you. That's, that could be all it means. But I actually think there's more to it than that. In this case, I do think there's more meaning than just that. Because all throughout Joshua 2 through 6, if you read it, there are all these repeated allusions back to the Exodus and the Passover events that had happened about 40 years before this. And if we had time, I could list them out for you. But for the sake of time, let me just say this and track with me for a second. So so during the original Passover, about 40 years before this, the Israelites were still captive slaves in Egypt. God commanded them during that time to kill a lamb, to slaughter it, and take its blood and paint it over their doors. And by doing so, the angel of death would pass over their homes. That's why we call it Passover. And he would only visit death and destruction on the homes of the Egyptians. This is how God convinced Pharaoh to finally let his people Go. Here's why I'm telling you all of that. The scarlet blood of the lamb painted over the doors was explicitly called a sign, just like the scarlet cord is called a sign here in Joshua. And both of those signs are reminders of substitution. Over in Egypt, it was the lamb that's being substituted for the firstborn children. And in Rahab's story, it's the promise of those spies to substitute their lives for Rahab. Here's my point in saying all of that. I think it's reasonable to conclude that this scarlet cord hanging out this window was meant to remind the people of Israel and us of the Passover. And that original Passover was a shadow pointing us to a better Passover and a better covenant of substitution. And that brings us back like I said, to Matthew's gospel. So now, remember, we've been in Matthew's gospel chapter 1 with the the genealogy and the nativity story. If we move 25 chapters in the future, after all of that, Jesus' story now begins to reach its climax. Where? At a Passover meal. Looking back on that original Passover, commemorating it, remembering it. And Jesus takes a cup of wine in the middle of that Passover meal. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, he says this, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So like the Israelites in Egypt and Rahab in Jericho, what Jesus is saying there is the only way any of us can be forgiven of and saved from our sins, the only way that death and destruction can pass over us is if a substitute takes our place. But unlike them, however, we have a better sign than the blood of lambs and scarlet cords. We have the blood of the sinless Son of God. What Jesus is saying there is, and and what we're seeing in Him is in His great chesed covenant kindness, He looked at our plight and He said, I will give my life for yours. So he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross where he took the curse of haram destruction on himself 
so that it could pass over us. He was excluded from his people as a criminal so that we could be included in his people as family. And this, this is ultimately where Christmas is pointing us to. The baby lying in a manger has become a lamb hanging on a cross. That is the means of our salvation. So the only question left to ask now is the most challenging question of all. What are you doing with this salvation that Jesus paid so dearly for? Let me actually target that to two separate groups of people that I know are here this morning. First, if you're here this morning and you consider yourself already to be a follower of Jesus Christ, let me ask you, what are you doing with this salvation that you have received? I would encourage you to learn from Rahab. You you probably picked up on this already, but, but Rahab didn't ask just for salvation for herself, did she? She asked for salvation for her father, mother, brother, sisters, and all who belonged to them because she didn't want to keep this salvation to herself. She wanted to share it with the people she loved. But let's take that a step farther. The story of Rahab doesn't just encourage us to desire the salvation of people who are like us and close to us. It also reminds us and pushes us to desire the salvation of people who are different from us and far from us. Rahab, think about it, Rahab was as different from those Israelite spies as you could get. She was a woman, she was a prostitute, she had spent her life up to that point worshiping another god and living in a culture steeped in the worst kinds of sins. But her inclusion into the people of God should encourage us, maybe even put us to shame by reminding us that Jesus didn't come into this world just to save people who look like and think like and talk like us. He sent Jesus to save people from every nation, language, class, criminal history, religion, political party, sexual orientation. We could keep going and going and going. The spirit of Christmas is not found in shut doors but in open doors. So, So to those of you who are followers of Jesus, I would encourage you this Christmas season to open your door. Open your life to the people who are in your circle who need the salvation that you've got. Maybe it's a family member, a friend, coworker, a neighbor, whoever it is, however similar or different they might be, don't keep this salvation to yourself. Be a Rahab and bring others in. But let me end by taking that same question and directing it to those of you who are here, and you would say, I don't really consider myself a follower of Jesus. I'm not sure about all this. What I would say to you, if you would allow me, is you've now heard about this salvation. What are you going to do with it? Because it demands a decision, if I may say that as bluntly as I can. there's There's no middle ground with the salvation of Jesus Christ. So again, I would just ask you, humbly ask you to consider Rahab because Rahab had plenty of pressure to reject the salvation of Israel's God. For starters, she was alone among her people. Nobody else in the city was changing sides with her. They had all heard about God, and to some degree, they believed in His power. Remember what we're told in verses 10 through 11. Rahab says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. And and when we heard this, we all lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. They believed in God's power, and they even trembled at it, but they did not surrender to Him. And we're never told explicitly why more people didn't, but I think it's probably at least had a little bit to do with where they were living. 
Remember, they're in Jericho. Jericho at this point was a city that to some degree or another had been around for thousands of years. It's one of the oldest cities in existence. And we all know about its infamous walls. They were were some five feet thick and over 20 feet tall. So, So despite the reports of the power of the true God, the people inside those city walls, they probably convinced themselves that their great city and their great culture and their great gods and their great walls would prevail in the end. But Rahab against the tide of her culture, against the commands of her king, against the perceived safety of the city walls, she decided to throw in with and place her faith in the God of Israel. We, we can hear that profession of faith at the end of verse 11. She says, when we heard this, we lost heart. Everyone's courage failed. That's where everybody else stopped. But Rahab took it a step further. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Listen to that. That, That's no Instagram profession of faith that looks good for your followers but costs you nothing. She literally risked her life to trust in this God and hide these spies. She turned her back on her entire way of life. She had no idea what the future would hold for her after Israel conquered and destroyed her city. But she stepped out in faith because she couldn't ignore the truth that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. It was risky. It was costly. But look at what she gained from it, life for her and her family, freedom from a culture that used and abused the weakest and most vulnerable, a safe and secure place to belong, and the honor of being included in the family tree of the Son of God. I'm going to go ahead and have the worship team come up. Almost every store you visit right now, every radio station you turn on uh, is playing Christmas music, and I love it. I love Christmas music. When Thanksgiving hits, that's all I want to hear. But there's one song that gets played over and over and over again. I'm sure you've heard it. Let me just read to you the very first words of this song, and I know you're going to recognize it. It says, last Christmas. (laughs) I knew that's all I would have to say. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. The very next day, you gave it away. This year, to save me from tears, I'll give it to someone special. As cheesy as that is, I can feel the eyes rolling. I quote it for a reason. I imagine that there's a lot of people in this room who know exactly what that's talking about, what it's like to give your heart away, to trust in someone, not even necessarily romantically, maybe, to trust in someone only to be let down or abandoned. And after you experience that one time or two times or three times, at a certain point, it's only natural to be skeptical about ever doing that again. But what the stories of Rahab and Christmas show us is that Jesus Christ is the one person that you can give your heart to because he's the one person who gave his heart, gave his whole life for you. He won't let you down. He won't abandon you. Yes, let's be honest. Putting your faith in Jesus does seem like a big risk, and it is costly. But everything I'm trying to say is be inspired by Rahab. Stop hiding behind and putting your trust in the Jericho walls of your life that seem to provide so much protection. Whatever they might be for you, maybe it's career success or beauty or family or friends or intelligence or your education level. All those things, if you listened, all of them can be good and strong things, but they will all eventually fail to give you the security, identity, and hope that you're looking for. And not a single one of those can save you from your sins. Only Jesus can do that. So what I'm saying is hide behind him. Trust in 
him because what you stand to gain is far greater than anything you might lose. Through faith in Jesus, you gain a salvation that brings life, freedom, a place to call home, and a spot in Jesus' family tree that can never be taken away. Let me pray with you before we take communion. Heavenly Father, thank you for this big, beautiful salvation that you've accomplished for us through your son, Jesus Christ. For my fellow believers who've already thrown in with Jesus, my prayer is that we would just be given this morning through your spirit and your word a fresh vision of just how great and glorious this salvation is so that we might be more excited to take it to other people, people that are like us and unlike us, people who maybe even consider us their enemies. Let us go out with love in our hearts for them as the very Son of God did when he came down to this earth. Move us this Christmas season to take this promise to all the nations, all the peoples, because that's your ultimate purpose and plan. But I also want to pray this morning for those that are under the sound of my voice who haven't received this salvation. They're still figuring it out. They're still wondering. They're still weighing things in the balance. My prayer is that your spirit would open their hearts to see the beauty of Jesus that's so compelling that they have the courage to step out and take this risk and turn their life over to him. And that you'll help them to see and to find out in real time that it is a, it is a decision they won't regret. Help them to see all that they stand to gain, no matter what they might lose in the process. They will gain a Savior that will never leave them and never forsake them and promises us more joy and hope than we could ever contain in this life. So thank you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for your spirit and your word. May you be with us in this Christmas season. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.